0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the New Books Network. Uh, My name is Lee Pierce. She, they pronouns. I am a visiting assistant professor of rhetoric in the Department of Communication at SUNY Geneseo. And today I am very excited, uh, as I mentioned in the prologue, to be joined by Belinda Stillian Southard, whose new book, How to Belong, Women's Agency in a Transnational World, has just hit shelves from Penn State University Press and its discussions of uh, uh, women, leaders, and, and international rhetoric all of the ways that they're changing and challenging notions of citizenship and agency has just been absolutely illuminating to read. And I'm very excited to bring Belinda on. Belinda, are you there? I am here. Awesome. And Belinda's okay? First name's good for you? Perfect. Okay, cool. And your pronouns, she pronouns are fine? She pronouns, perfect. Awesome. Well, good. Well, do you want to um, say hello to the, the listening audience?
1: <laughs> I would love to. Hello, listening audience. How are you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> they don't talk back good. That's not how this works. <laughs> um, um, so you are at, you, you want to just maybe give a little bit, I don't usually love like a lot of background, but you do rhetoric. You are at the University of Georgia.
1: Yes. I'm an associate professor at the University of Georgia. Um, broadly, I teach in um, social movements and women's rights rhetoric, and I'm an affiliate with the um, Institute for Women's Studies here.
0: Yes. And Belinda I used to be colleagues. So if there, if the audience finds a presumed level of familiarity here, Mm -hmm. that is because there is one. Well, how to belong is just not only incredibly timely, which is always nice for these books because sometimes they come out and they're like referencing things Mm -hmm. that it's hard to sort of connect to immediate context. Mm -hmm. So not only timely, but also your just nuanced reading. And also I would imagine like the research that it took Mm -hmm. to put together all of these different sets of discourses, it was, I mean, it was almost a page turner. I really enjoyed it. Oh, I, thank I, you. I, I, in fact, I would get interrupted by having to do my real life stuff and sad that I had to put it down. So yeah. there's a lot to unpack in the book. And since readers haven't read it, I thought we would start with just kind of a place where the argument best crystallizes in the book.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And we discussed maybe talking about this concept of Denizenship? Because, you know, readers, I'm sure you've heard of the concept of citizenship, yes. and I'm sure that you understand that leaders in political contexts will say things about being a good citizen or being a, a bad citizen. And mm-hmm. in fact, for those of you that have not heard Leslie Honor's interview mm-hmm. um, about the Americanization campaigns of the early 1900s, that's a really great place to see, I think, what I think of as uh, a typical American perspective on what citizenship is. Yeah and how that came to be. But you're you're really talking about how a lot of these international women in political positions uh throughout the I guess it's 2000s yeah. early 2010s are pushing back uh, and with citizenship, with this notion of denizenship and connecting it to these dwelling spaces that are not, that are not only have unique um relevance in sort of the African context that you're talking mm-hmm. about but also for women's women emerging into public spaces, right? Yeah. So why don't you chat a little bit about dwelling in the landscape of the nation and mm-hmm. dwelling uh, in homes with West African, with the, with the chapter on West African peace?
1: I would love to. So, um, and I'm glad because this um, case in particular is really what drove me, compelled me to write this book. So um, l- considering that citizenship broadly, it became more and more clear to me. My first book centered on citizenship in a u.s context and how groups um specifically women were fighting to gain rights of citizenship and that's the story of american progress and it's um not a perfect linear story but i did realize that i was sort of part uh, contributing to one that's like yeah citizenship is the ideal it's fraught and you know we've excluded violently groups of people um as we've tried to as groups have tried to expand what it means to be a citizen. So you're right. Citizenship is the dominant discourse. But uh, looking in a much broader scope, I realized, you know, citizenship is violently exclusive um, in a context of democracy like the United States, right? We have a history of this. But in in nations where citizenship isn't even an option for groups, then how are they functioning? How are they part of a community? Um, how do they still want to be part of a national community? And so this particular case study I found were groups of women who could not, who could not push to be citizens because it would get them killed, literally. So here we are in West Africa, um, Liberia and Sierra Le- Leone in the early 2000s, late 90s. And these are women who, if they said, I'm a Liberian, right, that could get them killed. If they said, I am a Sierra Leonean, I'm a member of this tribe, I'm a member of this community, one or the other, they're going to be taken as uh, slave wives or be killed because of different factional um, uh, rivals, right? And so citizenship wasn't a discourse that they could argue for. And so I wondered, over the course of many years, they did find a way to gain access to political spaces. In fact, they're credited with helping bring peace to um, Liberia in the early 2000s. So, okay, so how did we get there? How did they get to a place where they were actually brokering peace with warlords during Liberia's uh, civil wars? Okay, Um, and so I had to do a lot of different um, reading And I realized that you know there are different alternatives to belonging, national belonging, than citizenship. Now, citizenship grants you a lot of state conferred rights, um, you know, driver's license, an ID, a passport, things like this that um, are supposed to guarantee safety. Often they don't, and we know that's a double edged sword. So, what were these women doing? What I found was that for them to just survive, they took to traveling across the war-torn landscape of Liberia and in reading their discourses and their interviews, and this is mostly what I analyzed, I found that they viewed Liberia as a home. It was still a home. The nation was still a place for them to be. However, they weren't belonging as citizens. They belonged as denizens, and a denizen is someone who dwells within Right, it's uh, a denizen legally. It is a group of people that have sought refuge in another nation, and so they aren't full citizens. Right, so they have some rights and protections. Okay, but they are also allowed to be there, so they're in a really precarious position. Um, and that's and you can also flex that symbolically. So it's not just you know illegal. they weren't legal denizens, but symbolically speaking, they were go- they were not gonna leave. Some did leave Liberia, but they were not going to leave Liberia. They felt like they belonged literally to the landscape. They created roads between different factions so they could travel back and forth between factions and negotiate meetings. Um, they created fifty different checkpoints along one particular road to get food to communities that were so far out from Monrovia who were starving. Um, so in these travels, they connected this idea of working, laboring over um, a landscape uh, that was in, in, uninhabitable um, in order to belong and make sure that other communities belonged in a way that allowed them to survive. And so it, the dwelling part um, for me had to do with them not leaving Liberia, but also not sitting still um, dwelling can mean a number of different things. And in the way that I, I saw them dwell was to identify as them uh, themselves as people within the nation, right. Within these national borders, um, but also creating new ways for people to connect. And they didn't identify as citizens. They just identified as people who belonged to the land, literally
0: the land. That Yeah, that's great. And again, it, I mean, it all helps me because I read the book. I'm just thinking from the the reader's perspective. So two things to think about that maybe you could help. Uh, Can you give us some, some examples? I had a lot of coffee this morning. I'm talking faster than normal. Could you give us some examples of what it means for these women in that moment in history in West Africa to assert that they belong without the traditional, um, entitlements of citizenship. And then two, could you maybe then link this up to the rhetorical aspect? because I think generally the readers uh, the listeners of the language station understand that listening shapes reality. but I think they're less uh, familiar with the concept of rhetoric within there and I know and I know in this chapter rhetoric has a this thing that's called rhetoric that is sort of the thread of the book um, is connected to dwelling at that moment
1: um absolutely so okay, cool
0: so i'll leave you with those two kind of prompts and then we will maybe move on to um some of the bigger themes of the book
1: sounds good so um yeah i'll take a stab at um yeah your your thoughts there so one in terms of like uh concrete examples of belonging um well there was a uh, one leader of the group who was uh reached out to by a faction leader and said Uh, you're coming to my house. So he had dispatched some of his men. They showed up to her house. She said, how do you know I live here? And they said, there isn't anywhere you can hide in Monrovia. And so they said, you're coming with us. And she knew at that point, look, they, they might as well be taking me away and to be killed because I'm speaking up as a leader and I'm speaking out against what the factional leaders are doing. But she went anyway. And she knew that if there's any, if there, what could she do? What were her options anyway? So she goes and she was brought to the home of a factional leader. And she was told to sit on the porch in um, a rocking chair. And she sat on the porch with this factional leader. And she said, "I'm at his, I'm in his home. This is a site of violence. This is a site that is extremely threatening. I'm extremely precarious. Those weren't her words, but she said, I have to dwell here. I have to sit here with him in a way that is as if we're old friends sitting on a porch together talking about what, our, what their strategy should be, right? And she doesn't want to, you know, uh, in any way kind of support the violence, right, that they're enacting upon um, everyday civilians, um, but she does want to be part of brokering communications between different faction leaders. And then they took her home. After that, so in a way, she embraced dwelling with factional leaders in very precarious spaces. Um, but in that in that dwelling place for that moment, she was able to confer with him, and he actually listened to what she said. So that is one example of the the dwelling as a political strategy. You know, politically speaking, she's like, I'm going to be in the home with this person. Um, Another example of dwelling is that, you know, these women were remarkable. I called them peace women broadly because there were multiple, multiple peace organizations formed um, throughout Liberia, throughout Sierra Leone, um, throughout um, all West African nations together. And so um, they strategized with one another to... um, communicate and and support each other in different nations. And so groups of Liberian women would travel across the border um, to Sierra Leone. And that was a really precarious place. That's where a lot of factions um, and different groups would find, um, you know, everyday civilians trying to cross the border and hold them hostage or enact whatever violence upon them they would, um, seeing them as, let's say, Sierra Leoneans, saw Liberians as property of belonging to one faction, and then they would whatever um ensued from there it was grisly and not and not happy so but these women found ways to say no you know these women are staying with me in my house and so while um Sierra Leonean women would host Liberian women activists in their homes these homes that used to be a place for their families right and their families were gone either had they had fled for a refugee camp either they had fled to live with another family where they would be safer or they'd been Killed, quite frankly. Um, But these homes were a new dwelling place. And they would host these women um, that they met through different networks um, and allow them uh, space to be able to decide what their next political move was going to be. And so they were these temporary homes, these temporary dwelling places that would allow these women to speak with one another or allow women leaders to speak with factional leaders. Um, And then that is a place where they could say they belonged, And it is temporary. Denizenship is a temporary, precarious designation. And so um, that's, those are a couple different examples of belonging um, that I highlight in that particular chapter. Now, um, rhetoric. So the idea of rhetoric here that that I embrace throughout the book is really just to um, talk about, you know, what. What strategies, I guess, and not just a political, what symbolically were these women doing with their actions and with their words? And so their actions, you know, they weren't just like, well, I'm going to go cross the border because I'm going to go and protest this particular peace conference in, um, you know, Sierra Leone over here. Um, Rhetorically, the rhetoric part is where they say, I symbolically. That's extremely powerful. You are a woman traveling in very dangerous territory and you are showing these factions that you are not going to be property to be owned or to be destroyed. Right? So there's a a heavier, there's an attachment there. There's a, a deeper symbolic kind of way of understanding what these women were doing. Um, and they were crafting, I think for other women more broadly and for men and for men, Former soldiers, you know, who were coerced into be, into um, participating in factional violence, you know, things like that, you know, they wanted to create a place where they could belong. Um, and so rhetorically speaking, um, dwelling was a way to push back against citizenship um, and to say, you know, citizenship isn't getting us anything right now because as a nation we don't know who we are so what does it mean to be a citizen of Liberia what does it mean to be a citizen of Sierra Leone we're embroiled in civil war and to say you're a, a, a national list of Liberia could get you killed so instead dwelling kind of super in a way supersedes citizenship right and so rhetorically speaking symbolically it allowed these women some wiggle room, really. It allowed women to move in and out of spaces that they wouldn't have been able to if they said, I'm here as a Liberian nationalist, right? So hopefully that helps fill out you know, the purpose, larger questions about the purpose of the book, right? And then and how significant it was for these women to dwell as opposed to um, push for citizenship citizenship rights explicitly.
0: Yeah. I just, I love the, I love that. I was hoping that I, lo, I love the porch example. And also because it also brings this idea of dwelling as like this rumination practice of, of dwelling on an issue because mm-hmm. you're kind of stuck, right? Mm-hmm. And that's something that only some subjects have to do in those cases. Correct. Not everyone has to dwell, right? Because they're in positions where they get to make decisions as opposed to being in positions of, I wonder how this is going to happen. That's <laughs> like, right, or, right. I'm going to leave alive or not. Yeah. That's
1: right. And I, one of my favorite concepts I came across, right, is so there's um, dwelling in travel and traveling in dwelling. You know, these are two different ideas where if, you have, if you're part of a nomadic culture, you're always traveling, um, but you can still dwell right? So there's just because you're physically in motion and moving, you're still, you can dwell internally. And of course, if you're able to sit in a space, you know, that you feel right, that you rightfully belong to, right? And you're in stillness, you know, you can, you're, you're dwelling in a way, but you can also travel in that dwelling. And it's more of a, like a mental thought to be more of a mental exercise. And that is something that, you know, privileged humans can do. Right. But in this case, that was, that was not always an option. It wasn't an option for women to, You know, take up residence somewhere with an idea that it's permanent. You know, so that the the dwelling within you could consider maybe the nation and its borders as a space that the women were staying within. However, within that national space, they did move. Right? They they couldn't sit still. It wasn't possible for them to sit still.
0: Well, yeah, and it's it's always nice to read a book that takes something as complex as let's just say nomadism as a as a political concept and doesn't Mm -hmm. just look at it as oh this is great transnational flexibility and Mm -hmm. border porousness Mm -hmm. but also doesn't say like isn't this horrible that these people right there's a very nuanced sense of yeah it has its strengths and weaknesses that's right and i will say that that's kind of one of the things I was hoping we'd get to is that for the listeners, as, as I've said on multiple interviews now, I mean, I think what sets rhetoric apart as a way to study the relationship between language and reality, as opposed to, say, um, your self-talk in psychology, right. is that is that everything is a double-edged sword for That's us. That's right. So, yeah, the same the same practices that are going to get emancipation over here are going to turn around and get everyone killed (laughs) over here. And So it's tracking how they manifest in specific contexts, like Mm -hmm. like you've done over here with the West African, um, that that really matters, not coming to the conclusion that like, oh, denizenship is going to solve all our problems.
1: That's right. No, there are trappings on both sides. That's absolutely something that I make sure that we embrace as, as scholars who say, you know, we do rhetoric, what these women were doing, um, you know, what President Ellen Johnson's relief was doing, you know, what leaders in the United Nations women were doing. These are not things that are gonna liberate everybody there. And one of my favorite concepts, not favorite, but one of a concept that has great explanatory power to me is that with every inclusion, there's exclusion. You know, we're going to, Say that we want to include more and more women, but there were some groups that did not want to participate with Christian with Christian women because they were primarily Muslim, you know. And so there were divisions. There's always divisions within, and um, and and it's not dwelling isn't going to um, right liberate everybody. Not everybody can afford to push back, right? There were some women who couldn't speak up because they would face retaliation within their communities. So, yes.
0: Yeah. Right. Not everyone can be. a Malala. So. <laughs> so you mentioned um, Sirleaf. Why don't we why don't we jump to Ellen Johnson Sirleaf for a few minutes? Maybe we can look at another case study since it kind of came up organically and then, then maybe get to some. Because we haven't talked much about the transnational feminism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. literature in which is this situated, which I think will be interesting, especially since my hunch is that in addition to the language podcast, you're also going to be on the feminism women's gender studies podcast. So I don't want those people to feel like they're not getting um, their fair share of the book's knowledges.
1: Yeah. Um, So broadly speaking, I mean, that does really relate quite well. It's that... This book is responding to a very, and I would say contemporary, but, you know, many scholars have done great work to say, you know, we've always been transnational, Um, but there's been sort of a a recent intensity, if you will, um, since, you know, at least the 70s, but real intensity since the 90s. Um, Globally speaking, you know, with, you know, a global economy, these kinds of intensities have accelerated. So by that, I mean, um, with global capital. Right, with we have uh, the sense that you know, global nations or global sorry, not nations, global corporations um, have more power than many small nations, right? So they, they actually make more money. They have legally speaking, they have they get more breaks, right, than you know, nations, um, than corporations that are simply national. So with this, we have a you know, a very fast, a faster exchange of information, right? We get the internet of uh, bodies, right? more trafficking, um, and money. And so what this has done is made our, our borders, right. Um, definitely more flexible, more porous, and this is troubling insofar far as, okay. So we have more trafficking of bodies. Um, on the other hand, with that porousness, there is, for example, the ability for folks to flee nations, um, and, Right. This I'm not necessarily identifying this example as something that is like, again, um, totally freeing and and liberating. But um, folks in Syria, for example, you know, are able to find the pores in their boundaries to leave a situation that is undesirable. Um, And of course, we know that that is incredibly risky and those bodies are incredibly precarious. So um, in our sort of global world, we have uh, I mean, more pores you can say in our national boundaries. yeah and so um with that though we get a lot of fear and we see this now with the rise of more nationalism in european countries and in our own nation and so we have uh borders that are being um you could say fortified right um more and more so so what do we get with uh, what do we what's going on in our our world is that you know we have boundaries that are open to some, closed to others, some get through, and then they're told they can't go back. Um, and so again, we have a lot of precarious bodies. And with this, we have opportunities for women and, um, let's say, laborers, for example, to have access to new things they've never had access to before, points of entry, you could say, to organizations, to capital, um, and, and to rights, maybe that they didn't have before. But, um, but it is also creating a, a you know a human rights crisis, unlike we've ever had before. Um, so that is, to me, that's what transnational, that's a transnational focus. For feminism, the transnational feminist part, of course, is how this transnational movement. And I think Lisa Flores just gave a keynote at the RSA Institute, and, and she focused on the concept of stoppage. So we have this flow, right? And we also have stoppage. And so with the the movement and the stoppage and the holding of people with that. um, We see that this bears uh, down particularly um, in a really particular difficult way on women, women and children. So that's the perspective that I take on this. um, And my question is in each of my case studies is how is that enabling women? um, And how is this constraining women? And in the Sirleaf chapter, so Ellen Johnson, Sirleaf, the first woman president of an African nation of Liberia. she was elected after the civil wars end and the end of the civil wars is attributed to the peace women I was discussing before. And it gave rise to this great political push for Sir Leaf to be elected. Um, and so the, the phenomena was we have a woman president um, we're going to have women. Are the idea? You know, when she was elected, a lot of the discourse was: right, women are more peaceful, women are more democratic, women um, are going to help recover this nation, heal the nation, right? And they really kind of mapped a bunch of feminine virtues onto Sirleaf there. And she also ran on this platform that she was Ma um, African nations, right? Older women are, are your aunties or your Ma, and um, the Ma has power to really um, censure men and um promote women so so sir leave comes to power and she's very clear about wanting to empower women and girls that is a priority that is a priority for her and for her agenda and so the the argument that i write is that you know that sounds fantastic but she still is a leader of a nation right she's still gonna have a very nationalist perspective she needs to promote liberia she needs to make sure liberia recovers economically so i don't want to give her a bunch of credit i mean she's still playing a capitalist game she has to um, so what she did, in, in my view, is that all of the policies and the programs that she promoted um, and she got international support for, she got money for from like the Clinton Foundation, for example, um positioned women as very promising economic actors. She got them programs to learn how to read and write and count their own money and have vehicles to go and sell their goods at markets, things like that. Um, but she also positioned them as um, economic actors who are really the means, the means to get Liberia back on its feet. So in a way, women are back to being the factory workers, you know, the the women at the market, women, um, the women working in the fields who are basically going to shore up all of the resources that are going to be sold to make Liberia economically viable again. And that's a, that's a cosmopolitan ideal. So that's where the cosmopolitan belonging comes from. In a way, these women are being touted as international global actors contributing to a global economy, right? They are going to be the future of Liberia. But of course, the double-edged sword part of that is, well, aren't they just another kind of human, res- a resource of human bodies? So hopefully that sums up that particular chapter and, what it, and how it relates to transnational feminism.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, I think yeah, summed some it up great. I mean, I, I'm like I said, I'm I'm just dipping a toe in the transnational feminism literature through this book, and so yeah, I found it a really accessible place, but not overly simplifying to look mm-hmm. at all the complexities of what people have been doing. And at mm-hmm. one point, you actually say that transnational feminism have sort of been on the, I don't know if you use the word cutting edge. I don't think you say it, but they're they've been kind of ahead of the game with this,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it with this post citizenship argument and that they got there before a lot of other disciplines did. And so I did not know that, but that's really mm-hmm. interesting that they sort of have been looking at this move happening yeah. for a while now, and it's only now kind of coming into vogue for everyone.
1: Yeah. I would say that um, there's scholars in the more, the, the discipline of um, English more proper. I know we're, we're English adjacent, like <laughs> to say Com- right, yeah. communication studies and, and rhetoric is very English adjacent, but the, the scholars of transnational feminism um, in English and and more rhetoric and composition folks who um, absolutely love working with and learning from, especially at um, the rhetorical studies association institutes and places like that. um, They have been looking at this for a couple decades now and looking at how we need to be paying attention to the ways in which women are exploiting those places where they can get access, they can move in and out of places where they have access to power um, in, uh, in, other, in other nations, right? Or other regions or, um, and not so much look at the nation state, the US nation state as the primary unit of analysis for us. You know, so they've, um, I think they've been ahead of the curve quite a bit. And, and I think um, our our um, discipline, our field can uh, needs to catch up.
0: Yeah, well, and I think you say at one point, gosh, I'm trying to find where where I marked it, but you talk about how transnational, fe- one of the things that doing rhetoric as a transnational feminist or, or from thinking in the mode of transnational feminism means is to take the agency out of primarily speaker text right. and That's into right. sort of what do, you, what do you call these like bodies or collectives of forces that are more cumulative, like international agencies, like particular ideologies. That's so, right. I, th- I think that that's a really important point. And of course it's hard on the, it's hard to do this while well, either and I'm sure in writing a book or in doing a podcast, because it is just so much easier to say like, well, here's one speech this one person gave and this is what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. by we have exemplar, but this is not a book of like the great speeches that these women that's presidents right. or women leaders gave, right? There's definitely a, a lot of collective discourse. And maybe on that point, just to kind of prove, I don't want to undersell the book as being sort of like just a study of Sirleaf as an orator, but Maybe we could talk a little bit about the women's, U- uh, the women's conferences as kind of one of these greater collective forces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yes, Michelle Bachelet does kind of feature prominently in that, but that's as much the you, that's as much the, the structure of these conferences as anything else.
1: Yeah. No, I'm really glad you brought that and up. I
0: think so. we're now just for the reader's edification or the listener's edification. I think at this point we are now at chapter three. So we, we covered a little bit of chapter one about Dennis and Jip. And dwelling we did a little bit with Leaf and then now yep so now good we're moving kind of naturally through the chapters of the book and getting to the belonging as connectivity mm-hmm. with michelle bachelet transnational governance
1: yeah thank you thank you for um getting us there so absolutely one of the things i wanted to push back against is that yeah in the field of rhetorical studies very u.s centric. that's not a bad thing i was trained in presidential rhetoric um and then, of course, uh, the pushback against that was, well, yeah, what about the women? And the pushback against that is, of course, you know, why why are we so U.S. white um, cisgender centric? And again, we're a little bit behind the times, I believe, in looking at that. And our and our method has been, yes the let's study this one woman this one person of color right and and talk about how they did how they negotiated this particular issue in this particular moment and look at how powerful their rhetoric was and that is fantastic we need those studies um but in in a transnational setting um it's not tenable to use that method right so i'm not saying that you know looking at the single speaker and speech or single speech or an occasion um, isn't something that we should keep doing. I'm still using that particular methodology, but not in a transnational world. Um, Agency isn't in the one particular speaker it's dispersed everywhere. And so we have, yes, there are multiple forces at play. These forces are individuals on the ground doing grassroots work, right? Like the women in Liberia, they are the, the national actors, like, Ella Johnson Sirleaf, and then we have um, the multiple NGOs, civil society actors, um, uh, national representatives, representatives of the international governmental organizations, and our UN leaders like Michelle Bachelet, who was appointed to be the first executive director of UN Women. And UN Women brought together, I believe, four different um, agencies at United Nations. Um, and this took place in 2010. So She is a former president of Chile. Um, So she is, I think, very, very um, fitting to be the the first leader of um, UN women as the first woman president of Chile, as a woman who speaks four different languages, as a woman who was um, their equivalent of the um, minister of defense in their nation. And so in short, I think she's total badass. Um, She has been since then embroiled in controversy Um, because I, what president isn't goodness gracious anyway. Um, so she becomes the executive director of this and I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in how she has framed these, the conferences, um, it's called the commission on the status of women. They're held every year. And now UN women or then UN women was tasked with running those conferences every year. And so I wanted to know what is she saying about the conferences and at the conferences to make to, to see what kind of relationships are going to come up between civil society actors, um, NGOs, IGOs, and other national representatives, um, representatives of state members, state members of the United Nations, right? So um, what I found was that she was very, 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 um, bent on making sure that we listened, that it was like, we, I'm, I don't, I don't like this top down stuff. I don't think we should be making policy based on, um, what we think is best at the top. Um, the people who know what's best for us are the victims are the survivors, um, are the people who have become political activists, um, based on the, the, the suffering that they've endured in their own nations um, amidst civil warfare or political persecution. Um, she herself, um, this is coming from a, a very autobiographical place and that she and her mother were both tortured um, in Chile during the civil war there. So um, I'm looking at this as like, you know, her rhetoric, she does figure prominently or right, but then also um, what did the women that she that she and others organized to bring forward on different panels and again this isn't like i'd say this in the chapter this isn't like a moment of high rhetoric right this isn't a moment where like you have that ideal of somebody's you know taking to a podium and and saying grand things she does kind of give you know opening statements and closing statements right but if you've ever you know even googled pictures of what the un looks like on the inside i mean. The the halls are grand, but it just looks like one huge conference space. You know, people are chatting while other people are speaking. You know, you have translators. So it's not like this this rhetoric is to put it, you know, lack of a better word, sexy. So um I wanted to know, you know, what did what did people how do people relate to one another if she's focusing on the rhetoric of people on the ground? Um and you know what I found was that she said, you know, this is a rhetoric of transnational connectivity. She created spaces for women who typically wouldn't have the money to travel to a conference like this, um, and women who were ready to share their first-hand experiences with political persecution and to talk about the policies that they need to survive, and and not just them, right? The people like them in their nations and their regions to survive. So
0: yeah, yeah. We are. Um, so I, I, it's always trying not to jump in while people are still talking. Um, yeah,
1: jump in, jump
0: this, in. Well, and there is this really interesting survivability, like survive, thrive, kind of
1: mm. paradox
0: happening that mm-hmm. I think because you know I, when you say whenever someone says the word about survivability. It does kind of draw into relief how much you hear, I think, especially in like U.S. discourse about, mm. well, don't just survive, thrive. Mm-hmm. And it, it kind of closes our eyes to all the ways in which sometimes the most rhetorical agency somebody can get in these contexts is like survive, right? Yes. Dur- for survivability, not, not necessarily flourishing yep. because the context just doesn't enable it.
1: That's right, um, and there's also something that we need to be careful of, especially from like you know first world Western context. And I'm very clear about how, um, you know, in a in a context of the United Nations, in the context of a United Nations conference held in New York City, this is going to be um, shaped and influenced by a very white Western and, and and Western feminist kind of view that privileges liberal rational individualism, right? So. Um, being very careful of that, we have to make sure that when we see that, oh, Michelle Bachelet is, um, you know, given space or wants to give space to these people, that we we are careful of that narrative of the like victim, survivor, activist, you know, kind of narrative. Right. So it's like, oh, look at the and and the panel that I found where these women shared firsthand stories. They're absolutely um, paralyzing, I and mean, even Michelle Bachelet said. These are not easy stories to listen to, but I listen to them willingly because I have to. I won't, I won't ever stop listening to the stories, even if they're really hard to listen to. And, and I think in that respect, she's modeling and enacting and promoting the very kinds of rhetorical activities um, that we need to do in order to really shed that, again, that top-down white Western perspective on, well, we'll just, you know, make sure you have more rights. Or we'll, or we'll just, you know, make sure you can thrive and, and we'll just um, make sure your community has more money, whatever it is like, no, we, we got to deal with real community issues that are localized, like these women are, can't speak out because they're going to be afraid of retaliation of the very men that they see every day at the market, for example. So anyway, back to my main point is that um, the panel that, you know, I focus on, that particular narrative still dominates to an extent, right? So they only invited women who not only have this tragic story, but they have this tragic story and they survived. And not only did they survive, then they created their own organization um, locally and, and, and perhaps even regionally to help other women in that in their own situations. The I don't ever want to underestimate that that is an amazing thing. I mean, I, I, that is absolutely Wonderful, astonishing, admirable, all of those things. But I, I also, as an author and as a human, I want to be very careful to say that, like, they're, you know, that we're not, we just don't feel uh, really super good about this. See, look at these brown and black women. Look at how they're um, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, right? Because this is not uh, a, a pipeline thing, right? This is a situation where. We need to be very attentive to local context, local conditions in which women cannot push back all the time. And the women that were called forth to speak are women that seem to fit into a narrative that we're happy with. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah. And it also um, it also kind of points to this so we're willing to pay for these horrifying mm-hmm. stories as mm-hmm. fodder for mm-hmm. like war movies or revenge mm-hmm. narratives. That's right. But we won't listen to them as practice, and so there's a real double edged standard, because in some because if there's no redemption, then they're too painful. But that's so. But you're the right. You're the redemption. Yes. (laughs) yes, They're inviting you to do something to not only listen, but also to maybe realize that this is not the way that people should be living.
1: Yeah, and and I think what I um, wanted to say that what Bachelet was doing. So I mean, I wouldn't have selected this as a case study if, I didn't, if there wasn't any kind of um, redeeming qualities to her, her rhetorical or anything novel about her rhetorical strategies. And I think what she's doing is, yeah, she's she is part of creating that kind of satisfying story for um, a white Western US first world you know, feminist. Um, but I think what she does is say, y'all just need to listen to that. And she would never say y'all, I'm just, I'm in Georgia. Um, but she would say, listen to it and sit with it. We need, we need we need to create policies based on these based on these stories and these experiences and this data, right? She's shifting what data means, um, but we need to sit with that and be super uncomfortable with it. And she and and she also says. Um, it, the part that I, I, I do enjoy is saying, and if we aren't be able to come to some resolutions based on this information and this data, um, then I will be seriously disappointed. And she really goes after them the one particular year where they didn't come up with agreed upon resolutions. Um, so she's, in a way, she's not messing around. The stakes are rich. She makes it very clear the stakes are really high. And she even says publicly, they are our audience. We are responsible to them. They are our audience, and they are shouting from all over the world, and they're looking at us. So no longer and she sort of positions the the, the folks at these conferences um, as being held responsible to all of the women who could who can't be there, right? And so it's like you're not you're not special. You're not the political actor. you're not saving anybody, right? You are responsible to them. And so, those particular rhetorical strategies I, I i found to be um worth spotlighting and worth bringing um to the forefront about you know here's here are some what here are some ways women are doing it, and here are some ways that I promise
0: sure well, and I thought you did a really good job in the writing of capturing her conv- i don't know if convictions the the mm-hmm. word you would use, but mm-hmm. I, I I found reading it I really liked how you captured the way she moves in that space again, we're kind of back to the speaker centered Mm-hmm. But again, you know, she, if she's speaking on behalf of a collective here and she's, right. at a certain point, you just got to work with what you can get to. It's not like you have, you know, you, I mean, I suppose you could put the grant money together to go fly to Liberia and interview a bunch of people, but I just don't think it does the same kind of work.
1: Yes. Yeah, no. And there's, and there's, it's problematic that, um, right there. Yeah. And again, with, with the archive available and all those kinds of things, um, there are, there are limits to that too, and as, as an author, I think ethically speaking, I you know, I make it very clear up front, you know, my position of privilege and um, access, right, that I had to to some stories and not to others and and, and so on.
0: Yes, you are very explicit in the introduction about that. Mm-hmm. Well, and I guess, um, but of course, as we've seen recently, you're still apparently well ahead of the curve. We would have thought you would have been the curve, but <laughs> as recent events have shown, you're way ahead of it. Um, Well, so we get to the conclusion at this point then, which I love the title, How to Belong or Not to the Nations. Mm -hmm, I thought that was funny. mm -hmm. And a lot of this, I feel like we've kind of already touched Are there any other big takeaways or insights from the book that you think you want to draw out before we start to wrap up?
1: Yeah, I think the the one, um, maybe in the setup of the book and in the conclusion of the book, this gets to the parenthetical or not, is that uh, I'm not suggesting that like, uh, you know, we're, we're over citizenship. Right? There, People have made that case, and I'm very uh, – um, I think their cases are very strong. They're very compelling, and we need those voices, right? So you know, Amy Branzell's book, Against Citizenship, and others that say, you know, citizenship, forget it. Um, and I, I don't – this book isn't trying to, um, you know, repeat those arguments. Instead, I'm trying to work with them and say national citizenship is a thing. It's fraught. Let's see it as fraught. But let's look at other ways to belong alongside it. So, you know, I'm thinking that Liberian women need some identification card to carry that says, yeah, I'm a Liberian citizen. Otherwise, they're not able to take their cases to court. Right. There is a court, a criminal court. Oh, that's
0: interesting. Right. So so there's a way in which that we're all like, yeah, screw the nation state. But of course, without one, you don't have any any grounds on which to argue.
1: That's right. And so Sirleaf set up a special criminal court just for sexual assault of women and girls. And so without, again, this card carrying citizen of um, this A nation, right? You can't take your case to court, right? Or you can't enroll in this leadership program, in this leadership training. You can't, all of those, you can't go to a, a market And say no. This is I have a a a deed, or I have a, um, what's the word I'm looking for A, a contract for this market stall and sell your stuff. So, it is enabling right? In some respects, but, you know, eyes wide open, it is also incredibly disabling. And so what I, I, I'd i like to see um, the idea of, of belonging as a denizen, as a cosmopolitan, um, as, you know, a transnational connector in these different ways, I'd like to see that worked in you know, alongside, or certainly in opposition to, um, if that is if the context, if you're, you know, very local situation um, calls for that, you know, so, You know, if you're, it's like, nope, not a citizen, not a citizen today. (laughs) Uh, Right now I'm transnational. I'm superseding the national and the relationships that I have um, with intergovernmental organizations that are then going to put pressure on this human rights organization in this particular nation or whatever those relationships are, you need to flex those that day. So I guess my, the, you know, the book, I didn't want to, I didn't want to make it sound like how to belong, right? How to be a really, really good Eventually become a citizen, right? I don't want citizenship to be the end all be all, but I did want to propose that, um, alongside national citizenship, um, or or at times not, right? There are there are alternatives.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, which I think is crystal clear in the book and enticing in a lot of ways. Thank you. All right, well, that brings us just under fifty minutes, which I think is just the sweet spot for one of these interviews. Do you, um want to recommend another book maybe for down the road for an interview that I could get in touch with? Oh, I know this is my closing. This is my closing question.
1: Yes, um, absolutely. And I'm going to botch the title of it. Um, Caitlin Bruce.
0: Oh yeah. Caitlin's new book.
1: Yes. Caitlin Bruce's new book. Um, I just, our library doesn't even have it. So I had to interlibrary loan it from Harvard. Um, So thank you, Harvard. Um, I'm reading it this summer with a couple of my graduate students and what she has done is um, looked at legal sites of graffiti making around the world as sites where you know we can contest um, and share different ideas.
0: Is it uh, is it is it is it painting publics? That's that right. Is? That's yes. right. So, okay, painting publics transnational. Oh, there we go. Transnational legal graffiti scenes. As I was actually thinking about her piece on the airport when I was talking about the the double edged sword of board mm-hmm. of borders.
1: Yeah, I think her book um, will take this conversation forward in just the m- most. From my- it's visual, right? I mean, there's, it's, there's an artistic expression there. She's engaged in the legal battles um, of what it means to belong or to not. And um, she's engaging publics. Uh, I just, her book is just going to be, you know, an absolute, um, just meteoric kind of star in the sky. I just I'm just gonna mix all the metaphors. <laughs> That's
0: cool. Um, speaking of another metaphor, because I've been working on a, a, an article right now that uses a knitting knitting metaphor, cool. and um, the the caption for this book from Bonnie Honig, and I think it's I don't know who she's quoting. I don't know if she's quoting Bruce or if she's quoting somebody else. But it says Bruce positions herself where quote urban textures weave is loose end quote. What is that the greatest <laughs> metaphor you've ever heard? Yeah. Urban textures. Weave is loose. I gotta figure out where that's from. That's weave awesome.
1: Is loose? I'm cool. I'm down with yeah, that. Yeah, because you got
0: like, you know, the weave of the text and the yeah. and the and the text as the graffiti and then also like the weave, right? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you for that recommendation. Yeah, it's been on my radar. I just honestly, there's a lot of books. I'm working my way through the nomination list for this year's NCA Book of the Year Award.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um yep.
1: from what so I understand- put this on there. It's long, but that's a very good list. That means our, our field is thriving. We've got a lot of good ideas.
0: Yes. No, no. The books, that I mean, I oh gosh, I don't know. I did Brad Vivian's um, witnessing book. Yeah, Commonplace oh, Witnessing. Mm-hmm. So good. And then Brian McCann's new book on gangster rap and the, the sort of the politics of 90, post-riot 90s culture. And then, um, oh gosh, Kendall Jackson's new stuff on turn-of-the-century horror films. Holy cow. Yeah, there's been some amazing stuff.
1: You know what? I you think- just listed three books that I assigned my, my grad class to read did Last you fall
0: just There's, amazing so good yeah and you know of course the know how to belong is is on top of that now, and you know in addition to the militant citizenship book which you know I guess you're kind of taking a bit of an interesting turn mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. In, in conversation but it's still a fabulous book
1: well well thank you Lee um if I ever you know need a boost in my yes. um, oh, uh, I'm a booster confidence you are the best you're the best so thank you for inviting me to do this this is like yeah. fun.
0: It's been awesome to have you. Well, let me know if you get any, uh, you know, feedback from the listeners. Occasionally, they will take the time to email to let you know if they agreed or or disagreed with something, and that's always good stuff to send my way. Yes, absolutely. All right. Okay, well, signing off. I'll talk to you soon.
1: Okay, bye-bye.